welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cagliano. How are you doing, Frank? David, I'm doing great. Thank you very much. How about yourself? I'm doing great. I'm preparing for a big trip back to the United States, going to do some research this summer, be a actual historian in the archives for the first time in a, in a while. So, so where are you going? I'm going uh, to, uh, to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, which is obviously a place that's near and dear to my heart in lots of ways. One of the 25 states you claim, <laughs> locations you claim as home. Well, I, I, I'm a citizen, really frank, of the world, but now Chapel Hill is a place I've, I've and Durham and, and the whole Triangle area is a place I've spent a lot of time and, and have some family there and they have some really great archives and so it's... Um, I'm going to melt, but uh, uh, after not being in, in a southern summer for many years. Well, yes, it's a warm day here in Edinburgh, Edinburgh. but it's about 70 degrees. Degrees, yes. Melting, but, um, uh, yeah, well, we will see how well I do. So are you going anywhere else? Is, uh, no, I think we're going to be mostly there in, in Chapel Hill and in Durham. I might go up to the mountains for a day or two uh, where, where my wife has some family, but uh, other than that, going to be be in heavily air-conditioned archives during the day and then walk outside and then melt, which is uh, sort of the way of things. Sorry, I, I realize the, the premise of this podcast is, is basically a conversation between you and me, but, but this is actually a conversation because we haven't discussed this. So are you... Um, uh, when were you last in the U.S.? It was a few weeks ago. I, I was there, there for a conference and, and to visit some family in, in early, the early part of June. Right, this is your first archival trip. This Are there is my, any restrictions in the archives, COVID restrictions still? They've limited the number of people in the archives more than they usually do. So it's going to be, uh, they, they have to reserve seats and they aren't open as many hours. And you have to order everything in advance? I, I have already ordered all of my boxes in advance. So hopefully, and of course, for those of you who've done archival work, you, you know that you sometimes have some idea of what's in those boxes, but sometimes you have no idea and you can get through four boxes a day and some days it's, you know, you spend the entire day on one folder. So right. uh, we will see how things unfold. Well, good luck. Oh, thank you. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be, be quite exciting. Right. So last weekend was the uh, 4th of July, um, the celebration uh, of, of and Frank's annual anniversary where he says that the 4th of July is, and Declaration of Independence has nothing to do with the uh, Declaration of Aberoth and is also uh, Independence Day. Um, but this was kind of a somber Independence Day in many ways. I think many Americans are feeling a bit down. It's not didn't have the same kind of celebratory vibe. And it was also the occasion of a very interesting uh, opinion piece uh, by a, a historian David Armitage, a historian at Harvard, that was published in uh, the New York Daily News entitled Break the History Addiction. And we want to use that article as sort of a, a jumping off point for a discussion about, about the place of history in American culture and specifically uh, some of the claims he makes here in this piece. Yeah, and so David's essay appeared on Sunday the 3rd of July, so it was in anticipation of the, of, of the holiday on Monday. Last Monday was the 4th. The subtitle is July 4th and the Perils of Celebrating America's Past. Um, David probably wasn't responsible for, I assume, for the, the title um, or the headline of the sub-headline, but he might have been. Uh, but it's interesting and, and quite sad, of course, because the 4th of July itself was marked by violence. There was, of course, the, the terrible shooting in Highland Park, Illinois, and, and there was violence elsewhere in the United States, yeah. um, and, and which kind of goes to David's point, David Armitage's point in this essay, where he 
suggests he reviews the Supreme Court, recent spate of Supreme Court decisions, and we talked about those a lot last week, so we're not going to engage in, the, in a detailed analysis of those decisions today. But David Armitage cited those decisions and the um, uh, particular interpretation of the history of the United States um, upon which those decisions uh, were premised to argue that Americans or some Americans have a kind of unhealthy interest in the past, or I, to really put it properly, in a particular version mm. of the past. And it seems an odd thing for a historian to argue, but David is suggesting that um, you know Americans should take a more critical look at the past. They, they, they need to break their addiction, as the headline says, mm. to, a, to a, I should stipulate, a particular version of the past. Yeah. So he's actually saying, don't be quite so interested in, in, in history, at least history as you think you understand it. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things he, the, the, the phrasing he uses over and over again in, in the piece is, is he describes the usage of history by specifically these six Supreme Court justices, but more broadly within a certain sort of segment of the American uh, political right as a weapon and, and the weaponization of a Certain, certain kinds of historical claims, you know, and, and in the Supreme Court decision in, um, in, in the Dobbs decision, you know, they say the right to abortion is not deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition. So it's, it's you know, making a historical claim as well as it's making a you know, legal claim. Um, and one of the points I think Armitage points out is the court is using very different standards for what is deeply rooted in different decisions, even within the same term and that this is kind of a this is something of a departure right that 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 this appeal to tradition as a rationale for taking away people's rights which is what many of these decisions did um is in some ways in itself an an innovation uh and and we should be very wary of that yeah i mean uh again i don't think i i think Armitage raises bigger uh, a bigger mm. question than just the court, but he does make the observation that we, you know the the current majority on the Supreme Court is often portrayed as conservative, and he was suggesting they're actually radical. I mean, in the sense of um, because they're they're advocating a particular version of the past, or they're drawing on a particular per- version of the past in order to enact fairly significant um, social and political change in the United States. Mm. And he said that's actually radical in its. That's better described as radical than conservative, even though they're identified as conservative. But I think uh, Armitage raises a bigger point, and I, I don't. It's not. It doesn't map simply on right and left, David. Mm. I actually think I think it's more complicated than that. Um, that many people in the United States today have a kind of commitment to a particular version of the past that. David suggests is unhealthy. And the fact that it's very interesting that he did this, that this appeared in the Daily News, which is a tabloid that's published in New York. My grandmother used to read the Daily News, as I told you before we went on the air. Um, David Armitage is a very formidable and eminent historian. He's a very uh, kind of high-profile public intellectual in the United States. I assume that David probably could have, and I should confess an interest here, I know David and consider him a friend. Uh, I assume that David could have published this in the New York Times on the 4th of July, if he'd, or around the 4th of July had he wanted mm. to. And so the choice of the Daily News as a kind of popular tabloid 
to publish this fairly provocative essay. I think that's a fair statement. I think that's basically saying, saying on the Fourth of July weekend, "Hey Americans, you're too obsessed with the wrong kind of version of your past." Mm. Is a is a very interesting move and a very bold move, I would say, given the um, uh, kind of abuse that public intellectuals sometimes receive in the United States and historians in particular. What do you yeah, think no, that? I think I think that's uh, I think you're right that this is I don't know we don't know the backstory of this particular piece and why it ended up in the, the Daily News, but it had this been placed in a, a in the New York Times or in some kind of highbrow sort of elitist publication that'd be read by, you know, quote unquote intellectuals or whatever it is, you know, this is very much a, a different kind of paper. It is a, a mass market publication. Um and so I think he is trying to, to you know, speak to a potentially very hostile audience. Um, in fact, if you look at the comment sections on, on at least the responses on Twitter, people were, who, who, who responded to the article, were, were, many of them were very hostile to it um, in, in all the kinds of predictable ways. Well, and more credit to him for doing so. Yeah, I mean, no, to be sure. Because had it been in the Times or the Washington Post or another major uh, broadsheet or... You know, David David could write for the New York Review of Books or the London Review of Books if he wanted to do that, something like this. And um, so, so I think I, I think this was a a, a kind of bold effort at um, engaging in public communication, which is the kind of thing uh, we need to get to some of his substantive criticisms right. in a second. But it's the kind of thing if we're going to change the way people think about the past in the United States and elsewhere, right. then we need historians of the caliber and the profile of David to do this kind of thing. So uh, I, I think it's a... Um, and kudos for him for stepping out into yeah, the public to do absolutely, this. Absolutely, absolutely. So. Uh, so, so, David, I've got a quote for you. Excellent. Ancestor worship is a peculiar feature of American public life. Perhaps only China places its revolutionaries on such a pedestal and in few other countries are founders so fervently revered. Even efforts to cancel them, for example, Thomas Jefferson or even George Washington, for treating other human beings as property, are a backhanded tribute to their centrality to national life and their role as models, once positive, now negative. Do you have a response to that? I think his observation, as far as I can tell, is true in as much as there are you know the, the place that the the founders have in the United States is um, unusual compared to, to, to the role that historical figures have in 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 other countries at least in most other countries the comparison there with with China I think is an interesting one um, you know but we don't have thinking about here in a British context you know we don't have allusions to what figures from the 18th century thought about particular topics as part of the public discourse on those topics. Nobody um, says, what would William Pitt the Elder yes, have thought about exactly. would, have, would have thought about Brexit? No. That, no Whereas no. the equivalent discussion happens in the United States all, all the, the time. time. Churchill gets invoked sometimes in those questions, but by, by, even then it's, it's not with the same kind of uh, reverence. Um, now part of it, is, I think, has to do with the United States being a relatively young country and and so there's 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 elements to that there's the question of what else defines the country if not its history and its revolution um, 
that, that could contribute to that. Uh, but I think the, you know, the claim he's making that this is kind of a, a shackle, uh, if you will, that, that, that our, the Americans' reverence for the, especially for the revolutionary generation, call them whatever you want to call them, um, is a barrier to progress as, as he understands it, that, that you know, the fact that the court can strike down a series of laws, whether that's, uh, you know, or previous decisions citing the, the sort of deep history. I mean, one of the things he points out is, you know, the court is very much reaching back into the past and um, doing bad history. He said, like, one of the people that the court cited in the, the abortion decision believed that witches existed, you know, and, and obviously the, the men who wrote the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, most of those were it believed that slavery was justifiable and women were you know, not fully capable of citizenship. So there's um, you know, a, a deference to the past that, that I think is uh, he's really sort of spot on. What do you think about it? Well, well I think you're, I have, needless to say, I've got thoughts about the revolution. Mm. Um, <laughs> Newsflash, <laughs> Frank has thoughts on the revolution. <laughs> but what's okay. interesting, I think you're right, David's observation, David Armitage's observation, that this is a kind of shackle, that this is a problem, is interesting to me because it wasn't always such. You know, so if you go back to what your boy Lincoln has to mm. say about the Declaration of Independence, he has that famous passage where he says, all credit to Jefferson for, you know, in, in the moment of, of crisis coming up with this language, which is universal. I'm getting, yeah. I'm paraphrasing. But what Lincoln was doing was very cleverly appropriating Jefferson and the Declaration in order to really move the goal, move the ball, to create the a new birth of freedom. To yeah. expand liberty in the United States, not to contract it, not to... So, so, so and, and Lincoln's not the only example. We see this a lot in the 19th century. You know, the Declaration of Rights at Seneca Falls, um, you know, which appropriates the language of the Declaration. We see it in some of the rhetoric, you know, of Martin Luther King famously, but, but others. What we're seeing now, though, and I, I think you're right in terms of calling it a shackle, is this, this the invocation of the founding moment instead of becoming a call to progress is being used as an obstacle. And I think that's interesting. Mm. Uh, and it's interesting to me as a historian of that particular period. So on one hand, you know, I'm always kind of tearing my hair out what little is left about <laughs> this. Uh, and others, I think, oh God, we're doing this again. Um, and I particularly worry about this with the 250th anniversary looming in, uh, of the Declaration of Independence looming in 2026. Uh, but but I think it's it's interesting if you think about the past five decades since the bicentennial mm. uh, in 1976, the sort of received popular at some level patriotic version of the history of the revolution has really become calcified, and it's no longer a story of that's embraced by. Uh, people to justify progressive causes. Mm. Even even something like Hamilton, which we probably we've talked about in the sure. past. But the version of the revolution in Hamilton is a very small C conservative version of the revolution. It, it, it and it's basically the traditional narrative with really good music and interesting casting that's that, that's what makes it original. Yeah. Um but but and 
I, it wasn't always thus. The historian Michael Haddam is, is somebody who you should follow on social media if you don't. And is writing a, Michael's writing a book about the kind of use of the history of the revolution in the past 240 years. And it's, I, I think there's a really interesting moment uh, in yeah. terms of that history. I mean, and there are places in America where, where you, in American history, we can use the 4th of July, and people, Americans have used the 4th of July to say, look, this is a moment in time in 1776 where, where the country was, was established upon certain radical propositions, and we are still in the process of carrying those out and creating a, a, a more just and a more equal society as a consequence. And they use the 4th of July as a, a vehicle for that next step. I mean, I think you're right that in the past 50 years that it hasn't done that. Uh, and the evocation of, of, of the revolution of the 4th of July and what have you has become um, a barrier to, to further progress. Um, you know, that the language of, of the Declaration of Independence, if that's the, at least the first parts of it, if that's what gets, you know, evoked with the 4th of July, um, a kind of a, a radical equality that, that that's a was a radical idea in 1776 and still a radical idea today uh, but it doesn't get used that way yeah that's right that's right I, I think that's right but again it wasn't always that way I mean there's a there's mm, a, there's yeah, a long period in fact throughout the majority of American history where, where the, the kind of more radical view of the mm. 4th of July and those founding principles seems to have um, assume primacy than, than, than in the in the current moment. It's not always so. I mean, I don't want to. I, I wouldn't want to kind of exaggerate it the other way. But I think that it's um, it's interesting. And so, Armitage makes the it, the real thrust of this column mm. is that that and he's not just talking about the founding, but in the context of the Fourth of July, he is um, that this version of the past is actually. An obstacle, and he talks about how at a, there was a time, you know, for much of American history, the United States was seen by both friends and enemies as the embodiment of modernity and 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 democracy and so on and so and forth. And the future, and the future, and that this no longer seems to be the case. You know, so Europeans looking at the United States today don't look at it the way their predecessors did. You know, mm. certainly for the two generations right after the Second World War, you know, the U.S. was the future. Mm. And that is doesn't seem to be the case, you know. That now, I mean, we both live in Europe, and if you read the, the news media or follow the media here, you know, the, you know, every time there's another horrible shooting in the United States, or there, you know, um, uh, or in light of these various Supreme Court decisions, there's a sort of shaking of the heads and a shaking of heads, and people are saying, "Yeah, that's not the future anymore." If that, or if that's the future, we don't want any part of it. Which is a interesting. I mean, I've been abroad now for thirty years. Mm. It'll be 30 years next month. Oh, happy anniversary. Thank you. <laughs> um, and the shift between 1992 and 2022, in, in, and it's, no, it's not anti-Americanism, it's not that simple, but, there, it, it, it's, it, but there's a decided shift in that generation in those three decades that I've been able, I, it's difficult for me to articulate, but, mm. but where, you know, the U.S. doesn't, no longer seems to be identifiable with the future necessarily. Now, I think 
reports of the decline and, and fall of the United States mm. are overblown, actually. I, I don't think, I think some of the underlying things should, there are underlying reasons for optimism, but, but that general direction of travel um, is interesting. They, people don't associate the U.S. with the future necessarily anymore, outside of the United States. Which then reinforces mm. this look to the past. To and sure. sort of like this is, and so we saw, I, I, if you were on social media, and I've been trying to cut back, but in light of the current crisis in Downing Street over the past few days, I, I, I was more active on Twitter than I have been in recent weeks. And there was an interesting subset of all this with Brits and Americans sort of snapping at each other about whose country was more ridiculous or whose government was more ridiculous. But, and it kind of turned on each character you know, caricaturing the other's mm. history and, and government. And let's let's face it, I mean, uh, uh, there's, been a, lot, there's been a lot to mock yeah. lately, but, uh, but, it, it, there was, but there was an interesting kind of, uh, th th there was a kind of interesting transatlantic slanging match going on um, uh, as, as a subtext uh, that was premised on these assumptions about the past. And a lot of the Americans who were mocking and not understanding what was going on in Parliament. Um, I don't think anybody understood what's going on in Parliament, but, you know. Some <laughs> well, they, well, they, well, anyway. Um, but they were doing so and saying, basically, a lot of them were hearkening back to the revolution, mm. either implicitly and, and in a lot of cases explicitly. And on one hand, it was amusing. On the other, they were engaging in exactly the kind of thinking that David Armitage was talking about in this essay. That's because point. Yes, this is yes. this is uh, I, I, my slight sense, David, from our previous conversation mm. is you think this is a problem of the right. I actually think this problem of a kind of uh, misunderstanding of American history is is not unique to right or left. Uh, I, I actually think it's, I, I think I think it's you're, more I think, widespread than that. I think you're right that both the right and the left engage in this kind of thinking and have in increasing degrees for, for a fair amount of time. I think the weaponization of it the right has been more effective at in recent years, much more so than the left has. Um, specifically thinking about the ways in which they use the courts and other kinds of... of but that's not necessarily the weaponization of history, that's, a, that's, that's the use of power. And so the court might use history to justify its decisions, mm. but... Okay, well, all, all uses of power are, you know, you know, have to be legitimized by something. Otherwise, it's just tyranny. And so the way that they're using the past is the, the justification for, for advancing a particular kind of agenda uh, is intriguing. Sure, sure, yeah. Um, when did, I mean, I think that the point about the future that was just fascinating because, you know, the... Interesting thing about thinking about the, the, the founders or people in the 19th century or, or, or the, the kinds of people that are being evoked by people who are looking backwards, they weren't obsessed as much with the past. They were obsessed with the future. Um, you know, if you look about what Benjamin Franklin's writing, he's constantly saying, well, we're doing this now, but in the future we're going to do this. Your man Jefferson said, look, we're doing this now. In the future we're going to be doing something very different. I don't know what it's going to be. He had some ideas, most of them were wrong, um, some of them were not, but you know, he had ideas about what the future looked like. You know, um, Lincoln and all, you know, all the rest of them, they all have ideas about the future, so I'm just competing ideas about the future. Yeah, the rising glory of America yeah. is the phrase from the period. I mean, they, they, you're right, they're much more forward-looking in many respects than our current politicians are. You know, and you see that, I think that's true as a, a stream of American 
political discourse throughout the progressive era. The progressives are saying, look, look we, the problems of today can be fixed and the future can be different. And their vision of what the future is look like is good in some ways and problematic in others. All the way through to, to Kennedy, where he's talking about sort of the, the new frontier and all these kinds of ideas. Um, when does talking about the future uh, in, in sort of optimistic terms, when did that fall to the wayside? Because you're not hearing that a whole lot today. You're not hearing it today, but you did hear it in the recent past. If you think about it, Bill Clinton was talking about a bridge to the future, wasn't he? Don't stop thinking about tomorrow. I will not sing for you. Yeah, but uh, yes. Yeah, um, I mean, I think Obama used a lot of rhetoric about, about the future. future. Right. The interesting turning point, I, I, you know, we don't have to make this about Trump, but you know, Trump, and we've talked about this in, in previous mm. episodes, Trump and Trumpism, make America great again. That second, the, the second A in MAGA yes. is again. That's premised on a let's go back. Mm. Let's go back to an idealized moment in the past. And I, so, so I think that the, um, I think it's actually much more recent than you think. And again, I don't yeah. think it easily maps on a partisanship because I think George W. Bush talked about the future. A thousand um, points of light, yes. Yeah, uh, no, 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 uh, well, that's H.W. Bush. Um, yeah. But, but um, so I don't think it's exactly a, a, a partisan comment, mm. but I think, I think Obama's version of the future, particularly because it was coming from him in a country that was, is rapidly becoming more diverse, um, was threatening to some people and Trump was able to tap that. So I actually think Americans have been talking about the future until the quite recent past mm. um, and with, with some effectiveness. But it's in the past six or seven years that there's been a real turn against that. I think the global um, decoupling of America or the United States from the future is got, has deeper roots. I think that outsiders, uh, as I said, you know, my mm. three decades abroad, I think outsiders began to kind of the penny drop for them that the United States might not be quite as forward-looking as it seems. Um, more more recently, sorry, further ago than it did for Americans themselves. But mm -hmm. I think that if we're talking about weaponizing the past, it is interesting that Trumpism and the Trump movement, beyond the, the individual, mm -hmm. is very much premised on an attempt to return to a particular moment or version of the past. And in that, it's not unique. We see this in a lot of the political movements, the populist political movements around the globe. Um, which are often responding to the same things, um, globalization, uh, changing world of work as a result of globalization and technology, response to immigration, et cetera, et cetera. So we see this in, you know, with Marine Le Pen in France, and, you know, the, the, we see this in, with a lot of populist movements around the world. Hmm. That, that's fascinating. I mean, I'm one, I just, the, on the Trump note, you know, you think about his inaugural, uh, to go back to our origin story for the podcast, uh, you know, it's very backwards looking. Frank, one thing that, that fascinates me about this, this history addiction that he's talking about uh, and the sort of ways in which history gets used politically is it doesn't necessarily go hand in glove with a real passion for history education that that many of the the groups that are calling for you know 
this sort of backward-looking vision of, of or this, this reverence for the revolution or whatever, you know, or at the same time not encouraging kids to become history majors or to take lots of history in high school and, and all that kind of thing. Well, what sense do you make of that? I think there are two things going on there. Um, I think one is, and we saw this in the, or we have seen it, I should say, in the debates over critical race theory, which has become a shorthand for how history is taught. Right? Mm. It's a debate about how history is taught or not taught or allegedly taught in school. So I think on one hand, there's a fear and a concern, and to some extent this is being shinned up for political reasons. Yes, of course. But by... Cynical, cynical people trying to um, mobilize their, their supporters. There's a fear that a particular version of history that challenges their received patriotic, fairly comfortable version of American history that um, is a danger, and they, they want to stop that. And so they would rather stop the teaching of history than have the teaching of history that makes them uncomfortable. That's fascinating. Yeah. So you, you have a, both a reverence for the history, but also a, a fear of it. Okay. Yeah. It's it's a bit like biblical fundamentalism, though, isn't it? You're, you're, you're committed to a particular version of the Bible. You're not actually committed to, you know, biblical scholarship, necessarily. To be necessarily. sure. So, so I, think, I think there's that. Uh, the other thing is, and I think this is a challenge for our profession that uh, our, yeah. many of our other colleagues in the humanities don't face, and it's both a, it, it's a benefit and a bane. And that's the belief that anybody can do it. Mm. So you're, you're about to take a transatlantic flight. You may well sit next to somebody who says they, they love history or they're a history buff. Thankfully, I'm sitting next to my wife, Ida, who, who does not care. Okay. About okay. Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> but you take my point. Yes, I've been on, I've been on that plane trip <laughs> yeah. before. Yeah. And, and on one hand, this doesn't bother me because I think there's a popular interest in history that's an opportunity for us. Mm. But because of that, there is a belief that history is not that hard. You just need to read a few books. You read the books that are available in Barnes and Noble and how things get published is a very interesting mm. you know, uh, phenomenon in itself and what gets published. But um, uh, So I think there's a belief that, you know, going to, that in schools and universities, they should teach hard subjects, STEM subjects, things that will get you a job. And increasingly history and it's, Handmaidens, as we in this in mm. our own school, things like classics and archaeology mm. are things that you kind of do as a hobby. Mm. And I think so, so. On one hand, I think so. So there are two kind of contradictory things at work here. One on one hand, it's so important that it's dangerous, and we have to control how it's taught, or we'd rather it weren't taught at all. Because if you teach the so-called wrong kind of history, mm. that's a very danger to the the, the public. Country. Yeah, the yeah. public. And on the other. Eh, it's kind of a hobby that anybody can do, just read books on your own time. So I think there are two contradictory and slightly competing uh, factors at work. What do you think of that as an explanation? I, I think that that's a very powerful explanation. I, mean, I think one of the... The fights over the history standards and how history is taught in the United States have always fascinated me because it's, it's always been you know, a, a, a much more politicized than people realize. Um, you know that, that from the very beginning of, of history education in the United States, people have fought over what history gets taught, how it gets taught, who gets to learn it, uh, and which voices and which experiences get gets privileged. 
And obviously those are all fights about the past, but they're all really fights about the present and about the future. Sure. That, that if you can teach somebody, you know, a version of American history, you know, in 20 years, they could elect, get elected to Congress and, you know, make choices then about the future of the country and that that's the way you shape politics, you know, in, in the long term is by, by selling a version of America to, to middle and high school students, potentially. Um, what do we do about, if, I'm not sure whether the addiction in the title here is, is Armitage, which probably somebody at the Daily News is, uh, editorial board and you're trying to be provocative what do we do to break the history addiction because he he diagnoses the problem if you will uh here in the article but 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 he doesn't actually provide much of a a uh, prognosis or at least a, a course of, of treatment so how do, we, how do we break the addiction well david clearly we need more podcasts with middle-aged men talking clearly. about history i mean that's clearly the that's no no we need fewer of those i'm gonna listen to ours <laughs> Uh, We've got, yeah. I mean, Armitage, you know, and he's being provocative here, and, and he's got tongue in cheek, says maybe history, he concludes by saying history should come with a warning label. Mm. Um, so he writes, a little history can be a dangerous thing, especially when wielded as a weapon rather than a tool. Mm. In light of the court's alarming decisions and its subversion of precedent as settled law, maybe now is the time to put a health warning on history. Used properly with attention to context and complexity, the past forms an essential resource to chart paths towards the future. Abused for partisan purposes, it can do far more harm than good. And then he writes, Caution! Distorted historical reasoning may be hazardous to your health and to the health of millions of potential gun victims, women, and all the inhabitants of our threatened planet. Now that's a powerful and provocative way to end. But you're right, he doesn't necessarily offer a solution except, I guess, that that nuanced study of the past that takes that, that appreciates mm. complexity um, and the hard work of history is like you know history is not easy to do um, is necessary and that's well what else can we do David I mean we're trying to do it and not I mean you and I are trying to do it as individuals but our colleagues here in the you know in the yeah. school of history classics and archaeology uh, and our colleagues around the country around the UK around the US around the world who engage in history as a discipline but the fact remains that history, the history major is on decline, especially in decline, especially in the United States. Uh, history programs here in the UK, a lot of them are being shut down. Yeah, so, uh, um, I mean, we're we've got buoyant student numbers at the moment, but but uh, yeah, the, there's a danger that history will become as a discipline, it'll become a little bit of a boutique discipline that you study in elite institutions. Because you've already got enough family wealth that you can afford to study history, because you don't have to worry about a, what's going to get you a job. Yeah. And and history, after a century of pretty healthy numbers, or even longer than this, going back to the eighteen nineties, is is under threat. But if history as an academic discipline shrinks to irrelevance, mm. then will we all we will have is the version of history that, that David Armitage is lamenting in this in this essay. I think that's right. I mean, one of the things that struck me about sort of the way history gets used is there were historians who, who submitted Friends of the Court briefs in, in the Dobbs case and gave a history of, of abortion and abortion rights. 
which the court then subsequently ignored and basically said, look, we don't, we don't care about what the historian said. And the OEH and the AHA recently served, released a, a statement saying the court is misusing and, and is writing bad history. Uh, and you actually see that in one of the, I think it's in Breyer's dissent, um, which I mean, one of the last things he wrote, he said, look, his, the justices are not historians. Being a historian is a real job that requires specific training that sort of cherry-picking facts from the past to support your claims is not the way that history works, and the court should not be doing that work. That's not our job. Um, and I don't know whether he has a, a prognosis for how to sort of break that addiction, but I think he's talking about this sort of same phenomenon. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not sure what you... What you're well, asking me. Well, so I, I guess what we need to do, David, is we uh, you've mm. recently published an excellent book. We need to do try to do good history and get it out there and reach an audience. What I do think we need to do, yeah. and I and I think that our and I think our podcast is a is a small effort to do this, um, and we certainly appreciate our listeners. But I think both of you, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> what we can't do, yes, Ian in the Bay Area, Simon <laughs> in London, Mimi in Edinburgh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Um, what we what we can't do is give up on engaging with the public. I think that's right. And too many people in the academy, and you see this, you know, disdain attempting to reach a popular audience as beneath them. Uh, they're, they're, I think the answer is to do what David's done in this. He's written a provocative piece about this mm. in the Daily News. He's trying to reach a broad audience that might not otherwise read David Armitage. And I think I think engaging with the public is how we do this, but it's going to take a long time. Yeah. Now, in defense of our colleagues who 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 are sometimes apprehensive about engaging with the public, there's some good reasons for not engaging with the public, because you know historians who do get death threats. I know people who've had death threats for, for appearing on C or on CNN. You know they they get people who who write to their you know university president saying this person should be fired. And in some cases, people actually are removed from their jobs as a consequence of engaging with the public. Armitage is in a place where I think he can say what he wants within bounds and, 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 and not have any worries about that. But for lots of other historians, it is, especially in this particular political environment, you know, it does require some um, risk. It does. It do yes, it does. And not everybody has the skill set to do it as well. Cause it, and so... There are different styles mm. of writing history and so on. However, the disdain within the academy for public outreach antedates the current preferred political moment, yeah. I think. I mean, this goes back at least to when I was in graduate school. It's sort of like, wow, you don't really want to do that. And, and, and well, that was in the late Bronze Age, Frank, so I don't know whether that counts. <laughs> well, I, you know, Herodotus and I, no, we were in graduate school together. And he said, let's engage with the public, and you yeah. said, no. And he made all the money. money. Do you see that? No, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. So, so anyway, I, I think public engagement of the kind that this essay is attempting to do is the answer. All right. Speaking of public engagement, it's time for the last drops, Frank. What you got? Yes, so I want to I, I wanna, uh, highlight an event that you and I are doing, David, in the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. We've been invited by a friend of the pod, Susan Morrison, uh, who, who's been very supportive of us in the past, to participate in her series of programs called the Echo Salon. And we will be appearing at the Newtown Theatre here in Edinburgh 
at 2.50 in the afternoon on August 15th as part of the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. I don't know exactly what we're going to be doing. I think we're going to be doing this. Yes. It's going to be a live episode, essentially. It's going to be a live episode. And Susan's going to ask us a few questions, and we're going to take some uh, some questions from the audience. So that's public engagement. So if you want to stump uh, us with a question, this is your opportunity to do so and have us embarrassing. So Ian, Simon, and Mimi are three listeners. If you are available. <laughs> that's, that's where we're going to be. It's um, August 15th, uh, the Newtown Theater here in Edinburgh at 2.50. I don't think tickets are available yet, but we and uh, but we'll we'll put a link on, on the show page as and when. But I want I want people to put that in their diary. You know, if you get too much stand up comedy and too much, you know, burlesque shows, whatever else is going on at the Fringe Festival, you can come and see us. Come and see us for some sit down comedy. <laughs> <laughs> David, right. what's your what's your last story? Uh, I want to just point people to a news story that that may be under the radar for lots of people, but I am just fascinated by, and that is the. Uh, uh, the Georgia Guidestones story. For those of you who aren't familiar with the Georgia Guidestones, there's no reason why you should be. These are, they sound like a band. Yes. <laughs> well, there actually is a Yoko Ono song about them, but that's uh, uh, a whole different thing. This is a, a monument in, in rural Georgia that was erected in 1980. It looks a bit like Stonehenge, so these big granite monolith type things. So they've got inscriptions on them in six languages, including like Sumerian. Um, they're huge, massive things with some very strange inscriptions about being kind to other people, but also about population control. They're very odd. Um, but there's been people who have been critical of these things since they were erected in 1980. Nobody knows who paid for them. Nobody knows like where the money came from or, or who wrote the inscriptions. A guy went into a granite, uh, you know, quarry and said, look, I want you guys to build this. They're like, it's going to cost a lot of money. He's like, I got a lot of money and some uh, loyal Americans who were going to pay for this. And he gave the money under a pseudonym. The interesting thing about these very strange monuments is that somebody earlier this week blew them up. There was a bomb attached to them and they blew up and the Georgia police are looking for who destroyed the, these, these guidestones. And I'm just fascinated by the story because it's a weird roadside attraction stuff. New Age religion, future apocalypse stuff going on. Okay, question. Yes. Uh, first of all, you know when we remove statues, David, we destroy history. So this is very Clearly. this is very worrying. Uh, were they blown up as a piece of performance art, as in this was announced in advance? No, 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 no. Or was this an attack on no, these things? They, they, the Georgia um, Bureau of Investigation is doing. There was a car that was been that's been photographed leaving the site. But it was blown up in I think in the middle of the night, and they've subsequently, actually the I think removed or blown up the rest of it now because it was unsafe because of the ways in which these large stones. So were it was destroyed as an act of vandalism. vandalism, and then they had to sort of destroy it again to. So it wasn't destroyed as an act of performance. No, 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 no. The approval of the people who. No, 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 no. no. As far as we know, so it's a big mystery. It's a mystery about who put this thing up, and now it's a mystery about who destroyed it. There was a Georgia. Um, gubernatorial candidate who a, a like a couple months ago a woman by the name of Katniss Taylor who was a very fringe uh, sort of Trumpist uh, gubernatorial candidate in Georgia who said that, that one of her objectives as she was elected governor was to destroy this monument now she's ecstatically happy that, that somebody has gone and destroyed it so I look forward to what it'll be like season 17 of Serial when they, when they <laughs> exactly. try to work out who, who destroyed this but, monument but uh, yeah it's just a very strange you know roadside thing and, and those things fascinate me all right. Excellent. Cheers, Cheers David.
The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and Dean International for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes. <laughs>